But yeah, let's. You want to move forward to our main discussion? Absolutely. Um, I'll kind of let you um, sort of head this discussion. I know you have like a lot of. I don't even know if you've like you've probably written down your thoughts on this movie multiple times, and I actually didn't. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I I would have wanted to for this one especially because there's probably a lot to say. But no, I'm 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 gonna try and wing it. Okay. Um, I'm kind of just gonna maybe bounce off you. I know you have the the movie in front of you. We're kind of gonna. Sort yeah. Of skip through and, um, sure. But uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll, let me intro it. Absolutely. Um, so, this is a kind of I think a beginning of a kind of special series for the Mythic Morons podcast. We are getting into a franchise that is like really special to both of us. I think, kind of influences both in a lot of ways and just overall like one of the best uh, movie experiences. I think we can agree that you know or stories that we just both appreciate. And that's Star Wars. So for the next couple like episodes, not in a row, I would say, but like we'll space it out well. We're gonna get into the Star Wars franchise, uh, starting today with Episode One, The Phantom Menace. Um, so I think the first ch- question I want to ask you, Cheney, is what was your first interaction with this movie? Ever? At what age? Oh, or was this the fuck. first Star Wars you watched? Um, or actually, take me back there. Hold on. Actually, yeah. I think it was the first Star Wars I've ever watched. Um, born in 98. This came out in, what, 99? So, like, yep. um, you know, my dad was a big Star Wars fan growing up. So was my uncle. So, like, I still ha- I, I had exposure to Star Wars um, pretty much all my life. I've been constantly, like, sort of stimulated with it. So I don't really understand, like, to sort of pinpoint when the first time I ever interacted with the series is really really hard to do um especially the episode one but um most of my interactions with episode one was actually with the lego star wars game so um mm. but yeah no uh it was really young when i watched this um really yeah really we kind of were right in the middle of the prequels coming out uh right at the tail end of it i think was like when when uh at least I was going to elementary school and stuff, episode three around that time. And like, so for me, kind of like, <clears throat> like really similarly, I think like we were just born into a world of Star Wars existing, right? And I remember, like I was thinking about this today and I remember really distinctly like around recess time, just, you know, like talking to friends and like, you know, you bring your toys and stuff to school and the best, like the coolest shit that I could see was Lego Star Wars stuff. Just because, you know, like the kids that would play with it or talking about these wild stories and like really just like recreating and reliving these stories. So my first introduction to Star Wars like that I can remember really is in the playgrounds like at recess when people like kids brought their toys in and would be like, yeah, this is Darth Vader. This is Luke Skywalker. This is Darth Vader did this. And like this is the stories that like just kind of giving me pieces of the Star Wars mythology. So like in a really true sense, like I got it in a mythological sense like almost first um almost like it, it, in like an old-fashioned kind of like stories being passed down verbally and after that i was like fuck i want to buy these toys yeah. <laughs> like my first instinct wasn't to watch the movies i was like yeah i need to be a part of this coolness and and get myself some lego star wars and like i went to my dad and i was like dad what do you know about star wars and then for him that was like a light bulb going off like finally like this is now the time I can introduce my kid to Star Wars, so which is the yeah, way I also like, think it should be done because it seemed as though yeah. a lot of 
especially with episode seven coming out and episode whatever. It seemed a lot of parents were sort of like hoping to force their kids into that same magical situation that happened to them so long ago. Whereas we, within the time frame we were born, we kind of just sort of um, phased into it in yeah. a way. Rather phased than- into it's the right, yeah. Well, we were born into it, the whole yeah. hype of Star Wars. And like, yeah, you know, we were both born in 98. Episode 1 came out in 99. So our immediate years of being on this earth was born into a world where the Star Wars movies were coming out. So, you know, like, I can't give you an accurate type of, like, hype of what, you know, the prequels were causing, like, how it is today. I have no idea. Uh, I just know what I remember. And what I remember is, like, we were just, like, it was, like, the first thing to come to your mind. Like, yeah, Star Wars is a thing. And what, what what's the new toys that are coming out? What's the new movie that's coming out? I, I really remember distinctly Revenge of the Sith was coming out. I was, like, in Walmart with my dad. And there was banners for Revenge of the Sith, like, you know, coming to theater soon or whatever. And I'm like, dad, like, let's, let's get this star Wars box set. Like you, you got to show me this. He's like, son, I'm going to get you all the movies and we're going to spend the weekend and watch this. And so my dad took me to a not illegal store to buy not illegal movies. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, we, we watched star Wars. What's that? Uh, yeah. We, would you mind sending me that, those store details, please? <laughs> I don't know if it exists anymore. Oh, okay. It's actually like, uh, it's yeah i'll just tell you the story it's kind of funny like so we used to like go to this kind of like chinese not illegal store to buy uh, our movies and it was like on the front it was all porn all asian pornography and in the back was like their hollywood movie section so like and i don't know why they said it that's fucking so fucking back ass words it was yeah it's kind of backwards right like so we'd walk in and my dad's like just just go to the back like don't pay attention i'm like yeah you know what uh, this is like another interest that's growing in my mind now. Like that was like the start of another something, <laughs> but, oh, uh, God. yeah. So then we get to the back of the aisle and I'm like, here's all these Asian copies of star Wars lined up. And I'm like, okay, picking up six copies of movies. And I was like, just go to the front. I'm, I'm going to meet you there. <laughs> yeah. But that was, that was my start for, um, star Wars. And I binge watched the entire saga episode uh, one to six in a weekend and i also started with episode one yeah which is weird starting there to be honest i almost feel like you shouldn't start there i i would not advise people to start there i wouldn't show my kid episode one no did when that day comes it, it, yeah i don't think that's a smart thing i'm almost surprised and let, let's just get into it now i'm almost surprised we like bought into star wars as much as we have over the years if like episode one was our introduction because, like, the moment the movie starts, like, just look at the crawl, okay? I'm pulling it up. The first sentence, turmoil has, or sorry, the first kind of part of the crawl, turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. How, hoping to resolve the matter with the blockade of deadly battleships, the Greedy Trade Federation uh, has stopped all communications, or, all, sorry, all shipping to the small planet of Naboo. So, like, this shit sounds like a CNN breaking news headline yeah off the bat not exactly and we the were, call to adventure that you'd expect no you know like they, i i really wonder like what the diehard star wars fans were thinking at this moment like are we really about to watch a movie on galactic trade route disputes like taxations like but i don't know what what were you thinking when you're if you can try and remember back to when you were a kid watching this or even now like try and make that connection what are your thoughts on this opening crawl um 
here's the thing about um you know given time to actually think about like how difficult it is to world build um although i think this is like not exactly engaging the audience to be invested within a story um because it's more outlining a situation rather than outlining characters um I will give credit where credit's due with regards to prequels in terms of world building, in terms of, you know, these are the functions of um, how things get done within this galaxy, you know. This is what it takes to um, cause a war. This is what it takes to build an army. And that was severely lacking, um, you know, any sort of attention within the recent Star Wars movies, if you will. So, kind of getting back to, you know, how this crawl sets up the story, it's like it doesn't really do it in a gauging way, but... Hey, just hit, just hit your mute button there. All right, that's true. It yeah. doesn't really do it in a gauging way, but, like, it, um, it does what's necessary for the story, because guess what? The story mm-hmm. is about this blockade. And it being yeah. a big deal, so um, yeah. One thing about the original crawl, uh, uh, original crawl from the original Star Wars was the one that we see on screen. George Lucas didn't write that. Okay, so there's a famous story that George premiered Star Wars before it was kind of fully edited. It still had a kind of just like really some rough shots, I guess, still in there. But he screened the film for his friends. And just, you know, some normal guys, just your average friends, Brian De Palma, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese. Um, yeah, I think maybe somebody else is there. I wasn't there, so I don't know. But yeah, just some average friends who don't know much about film and, you know, just getting their opinions on it. And imagine you're George Lucas coming up with the most ambitious film of the time, right? And, you know, like stuttery George showing his friends the movie and his friends hate it. They're like, what the fuck have you made? What are, what is a Wookiee? Right. What is a Millennium Falcon? Right. Like, so, and I, I was listening to kind of, um, this, like almost a dramatization of, of that moment. That's event that took place. And Brian De Palma said something like, yeah, your opening crawl is just like a book. Like nobody wants to read this much thickness of stuff. Like what? And I think there's like, it is somewhere where you can actually read George's original crawl and it, it just it gets into like the prequels of depth, you know, uh, level of depth. Right. Um, that's um, a good comparison. Is is the book, right? The book comparison. It's like it it sort of reads like that. Um, earlier this year, I I read through an old book series called The Dragon Riders of Pern, which is similar in aspects to Star Wars. It being a um, instead of it being a sci-fi setting for a fantasy story, this time it was a fantasy setting for a sci-fi story. But it's the same thing. It's like that opening crawl happened within each book because the book needed to set up what was happening. It's like, you know, the end of the first book, you had time-traveling dragon riders come in to help the dragon riders of the present. And then, you know, you needed that opening crawl within the second book to be like, well, now there's turmoil between present day dragon riders and past dragon riders because traditions Mm. differ and shit like that. So it's like that information is necessary to be set up, but within the context of the medium you're presenting it, it 
may not fit well within an opening crawl for a movie per se. Yeah. There's different ways to present that information. I almost look at this crawl in two different ways now. There's like the way I looked at it as a kid and how, you know, I still kind of look at it when I compare it to like the crawls of other movies. And now I look at it like, you know, a little grown up, a little more mature. And you just touched upon it. You said this crawl highlights or it sets up the conflict that we're about to see between the whole kind of political conflict of how wars start and how like almost seemingly nonsensical something can lead to a war starting. Right. So the opening scene sets up the entire Star Wars franchise for us, essentially that opening meeting. Right. Kicks off the entire nine film story of the Skywalker saga. And I, I think if you leave it in this way and you don't change anything and the movie still keeps going, it's not, it's not terrible. Like it's not confusing to a point where you don't want to watch what you're about to watch right no no. it's um it's not confusing it does the job that george wanted it to do it's just that yeah when you're talking about film there's different ways to convey information that is more yeah it's not a book no right? right it's it shouldn't be given like this is like reading a book and i'll compare this to a crawl that is confusing and stupid which is the episode nine crawl Mm-hmm. which like from the first sentence you're like bro what the fuck like you know from this you're like yeah okay how about the episode Let seven me... crawl because that one i think is even worse i can't remember the seven oh, what is it? it starts like luke skywalker has vanished yeah oh, exactly my God. exactly like exactly <laughs> yeah. fucking hell I, that's a little interesting though i mean like you know when you come back to a franchise you're like holy fuck skywalker has vanished I'm, no I'm that's not the issue movie. i have with episode seven crawl the episode seven crawl okay does a lot of weird things that you know does the opposite of what um the prequels did like that's that sort of that anti-prequelism within the sequel trilogy yeah it persists it's like you know um while the prequels title crawls aren't really like call to adventures they're more world building um it's the complete opposite into where the sequel trilogy everything's a call to adventure and there is no world building and Instead of questions None. being answered or things being set up, you have more questions. Yeah. Instead of like, like here's the thing about episode one's title crawl. It doesn't leave you like confused. It doesn't leave you with more questions. It just sets up what the setting is. Whereas no. if you're paying attention, then you know what the world of Star Wars is about. Right. Or not about, but you understand, you understand that this world operates similarly to our world. It's not all fantastical and jedis and sith like there's politics here you know and i think as like more mature like there i can appreciate that what the prequels were doing with politics and you know like we watched we went through the prequels years ago right like back in school and i remember like we were watching like and i like in the span of a couple years how much opinions change but i was like man like this prequels or the politics and prequels was like a bit too much but almost I wish this carried through into the sequels that that are now out, which have like almost no reference to the state of the galaxy, the state of the world. And like there's it's almost like this is like such a key integral part to Star Wars that I think people just want to like cover up a little yeah, bit. Here's you know? the it thing brings that like a sense forget. of realism to it. Right. People forget the thing that like, people don't want to think about or care. Like it's it to me it makes it all the more interesting. I think for you too. People right? forget that the OT had politics. People forget had the OT took time to um 
to set up where the factions were in the universe with relation to each other, right? Where the sequels mm-hmm. didn't do that whatsoever. They just sort of put pieces on the checkerboard and said, Bleh. and um, that's my best J.J. Abrams impression. Um, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, okay. Uh, the prequels, though, like they kind of meticulously just set up the chessboard too much. You know what I mean? Um, but here's where I was going with that. It's like, it's not like the politics... Like, yeah, it's, like, not exciting, right? But it is necessary for the world building that George wanted, you know, whether that's justified or not, like, the amount of world building he wanted. But um, something like, you know, you get the boring stuff like the senator meetings and whatnot, but people forget that, like, you know, one of everybody's favorite things about the prequels is the rise of Palpatine. Right. Mm -hmm. And people forget like that's all politics, baby. Right. So you kind of get we wouldn't have a great Palpatine story if we didn't have the politics of the prequels. You wouldn't understand how much of a genius Palpatine is. Yeah. How much his master plan latched, like touched everybody and everything possible. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I'm rewatching episode one just shows you that even more. So I'm stuck in this middle ground. It's like, you know, like, I think this comes back to. I think this comes back to like the rawness of George Lucas's ideas again. Yeah. With the original original trilogy, he if he was left unhinged like how he was in this, yeah. we would have got a completely different story. I may have gone too far in a few places. You know, <laughs> yeah. that famous clip and put that on a shirt. Yeah, put that tattoo that on every Star Boy Star Wars fans arm pretty much yeah. cuz that's a Bible quote at this point. That's but you know what I mean like this guy had a a team of talented people like the top of their game in everything in editing in visual effects music all of that yeah and they trimmed his vision down to the most concise important moments and you know people can call it simple like a new hope is like almost like a template to how to tell a certain type of story Mm -hmm. so people can look at it like yeah it's really simple three-act structure hits all the beats blah, blah blah but everything he layered in between is his own raw ideas like that's what made it made it special and i guess you know after you create a successful multi-billion dollar industry nobody wants to tell you hey man slow down your ideas a little bit it's almost like keep doing what you're doing so this like the prequels are are that Mm -hmm. it's this just it's raw george lucas where nobody wanted to say hey man let's tone it down in some places or let's look at things again and with a you know i don't know you want to we all we all saw you want to know my, my outline for a not only a successful financial Star Wars series, but also a critically acclaimed Star Wars series? Take George. Yeah, let's hear it. Tell him, lock him in a room for two weeks. Tell him to write a Star Wars trilogy. Take him out. You know, you feed him and stuff, whatever. But he's not allowed to leave till it's done. And then you pay Christopher Nolan, James Cameron, and Steven Spielberg a billion dollars each to sit down and try to fucking make a story of whatever and he write wrote. The yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah, write the second draft. Yeah, exactly. Write the second draft. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's what you kind of need. No, but and that's what's really shown here is like George really did go too far in many places with this movie. We can come back to that point at the end because I actually want to ask that. Did he go too far? Like, yes. Okay. No, we can answer that right now. He, in some places, might have gone too far. But in his defense, like, he might not be the greatest screen director, like, directing actors and stuff um, or dialogue writer. Mm -hmm. But 
I think the something I noticed is he pays attention to like rhythm and tempo a lot, like in the cutting of his movies and in the flow and stuff like that. So let's just go to like the first scene. I, I'm just going to breeze over the Jedi encounter here, even though that's really all fun and stuff. But, you know, after the Jedi slay their droids and we're immediately in the senator's palace room in Naboo, mm-hmm. right? And you're in like the semicircle of all these Naboo senators and it's all just sitting down. And this movie is a lot of just people sitting down and talking. Yes. Right? It, you, this used to be one of my really big gripes about Star Wars. Uh, sorry, about uh, um, The Phantom Menace was like, it's almost like just video game cutscene after one another. But you hear him talk about this movie like yeah it's for kids but it's a soap opera i think that's always the point space of view he's hitting it at and it's literally like soap opera space opera whatever it's a it's a drama between people and yeah maybe he he went there a little too much at times you can display drama differently but i watching it now i got the sense like i'm watching like something of a an opera right now i'm watching like yeah these like people of high places and power like shakespearean type of shit was it necessary for the like the the beginning conflict to be as complicated as it was like did it need to be some sort of independent state trying to set up a blockade to gain more independence and free themselves from the republic or could it have just been like an evil organization you know like or an evil group of people that you know had more simplistic goals it's like that's where like we talk about him going too far it's like he, he kind of like every sort of faction and and many characters are run on sentences figuratively speaking where it's like and then and then and then and then and then and then it's like there's layers and layers and layers and layers and layers and yeah that has benefits in terms of world building and you wouldn't get great tv shows to expand on that like the clone wars but mm-hmm. in terms of like a movie structure you know fucking let's let's move this thing along right movies like yeah. are so tight and concise and they need to be air airtight in terms of yeah you can tell he had a lot of ideas juggling that he wanted to put in this movie a lot of things he wanted to set up yeah a lot of this stuff like literally just paying attention to certain lines here and there like will pay off like 10 years down the line in clone wars yeah right like just shit that you would just brush off like why are we hearing about this right now like it comes and pays off so i think you know with the foresight of stuff like the clone wars and the expansion of star wars like that stuff works for me now i think you know like we get to see not clone troopers or stormtroopers but we get these this naboo culture you know and i think though i want to get to this a little towards the end of the discussion but i think the whole point of this movie stands in like such a stark contrast to all the other star wars movies in in how it and like in everything about it, in the pacing, in the tone, but also in its message. And like, if you just compare this to the first Star Wars movie, which I think people will, right? Like the first of the original trilogy. And that in that you have a very clear good affiliation, the Rebels versus the Empire. Mm-hmm. And from the first opening visual, like the first visuals you see, that is tell- told to you clear as day, right? There's no handshake at the end of the movie. There's no handshake at the end of the trilogy. People don't make peace. It's just a matter of winning a war. Mm-hmm. And this movie is like George's you you can see his whole sensibility about war and people and life has like developed because he's now thinking the layers of that, right? In the ending of this movie we get people hold like um shaking hands. You get the Nabu and the Gungans 
coming together. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think this whole movie is. It's like making peace out of war or something like that. And I wish he kind of touched on that. I think that's why we spend a lot of time on Naboo, actually. That's what I was trying to get to. I think the whole reason we spend a lot of time with these senators and the, and the Gungans and like the, the trade conflict, it's like, okay, it's a really zoomed in conflict in the Star Wars universe. It's not rebels versus empire. It's one planet's problems that yeah. now the Jedi are involved in, the Gungans are involved in, some kid from Tatooine has to get like dragged in there. Like, you know, it's 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 a much more kind of contained conflict that leads into a much bigger explosive right. war, essentially. Are you familiar with the um, the Phantom Edit? I've heard of it, but I've never... Um, I don't know what, what that cut out or what that edit actually does. All it does is it takes the prequel trilogy and it edits it in a way to where it's like one movie. Because oh. a lot of what George did was, again, bloated. And in the Phantom edit, um, it pretty sure it cuts out the the Phantom Menace entirely, and it just really? and it just Holy starts fuck. from the start of Episode Two because when you actually think about oh, that's how disrespectful. no, when you actually think about how self contained this story is, <laughs> yeah, it basically has like and yeah, there's like small things here and there, but in terms of like, is Episode One necessary for Episode Two? Not entirely. I kind of agree with you there. You can, like, we could say also Star Wars starts off with the Clone Wars, right? Like, I mean, the conflict. You could look at episode one as the, what comes first in a book, the prologue or yeah, the epilogue? Prologue. The epilogue. So I prologue. I would see. Epilogues after. My, epilogues after? Yeah. Okay, sorry. My headcanon of Star Wars goes like this. Episode one is the epilogue. Prologue. Or sorry, the prologue? Yeah. Prologue. You just told me that and I fucked that up. Wow. So episode one is the prologue because we get the introduction to the characters. There's no real clear protagonist. I think that's one of the main criticisms of episode one. Like, who's the main hero in the story? And you you get a kind of an ensemble cast. You get Qui-Gon Jinn, who's the leader, and Obi-Wan, who you're almost like led to believe like we're following this guy along. Then you're introduced to Anakin somewhere down the line. So it's like, I got to keep up with multiple characters, but each of them is important to building up Anakin Skywalker, who's the the lead of the saga right um so this is just this movie you're right it's just very isolated contains its, its own world but you can almost view it as the prologue of star wars you can start with episode two as your main entry into into the conflict into the war but without this you don't know you don't know how devious palpatine is his his masterminding his hand over the galaxy his puppeteering you know right you get a lot of that through episode one i think so yeah, I think we used to talk about this too. There was the Machete Order, right? Of watching Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I You've for, heard of that, I for, right? I, yeah, I have. I think he's like it's what four, five, six, one, two, three. I forget. It's this is the order. So you start with four, then you watch five, then after you know Vader and Luke have their confrontation, you get into the prequels to get the history of Vader. Ah, uh, okay, okay. But you okay. don't start with Episode One. In the Machete Order, episode one is insignificant. So you get straight to two, then three, and then back to six. You end with six. Yeah, so it seems like the consensus is, like, episode one is so self-contained. And it is it plays that prologue role um, to where it's, like, its overall impact on the saga is minimal. But it's something that I guess people wanted to see was you know the old republic right i think that's one 
aspect i think that's interesting just the jedi order the establishing of who the jedi are yeah right exactly um yeah and here's another thing that i think is interesting and i'm kind of just jumping to the middle of the film now but right we were introduced to the prime of the jedi order the the peacekeepers of the galaxy okay this is a bit of a nitpick but i feel like this would have solved a lot of their problems at the time of the world um why did the jedi never come back to free anakin's mom uh because like a- ever attachments are after the fact <laughs> bro did they not think okay we're about to separate a mother and child okay tell this kid he's the chosen one he's some special kid He's like 10 years old, so he's, right. you know, he's grown up in a world that's not the Jedi Order. He has some outside influences. We're going to take him away from his mom, who's a slave in and the Wild West kind of planet where everybody's an outlaw and all that shit. And we're just going to leave her there and hope, like, this kid doesn't have premonitions about her death in the future. Here's or anything the bad happening to her, like... It's, yeah, it's, it's not... They all... Oh, this is the thing that just kind of, like, twists my head. Like, I know it's all purposeful. It's all to, you know, show who the Jedi are, Right. That's how I see it, at least. Right. That's what makes sense to me. No, like, I know it's not presented well, but I think that's the point. Is that mm. this crazy fucking cult just stole a child, like, away from yeah. his mother. And this cult, um, when he was brought in front of the Jedi Council, he was told, why are you thinking about your mother? Were you some kind of fucking pussy? You fucking gonna cry a little bit, huh? Yeah, yeah don't think about your mom. Much. Attachments are useless. Right? So it's like, you know, and I think that was jarring for people because they were told throughout the OT and it was shown throughout the OT that the Jedi are the guardians of the galaxy. They're, you know, the embodiment of light. Whereas, you know, George sort of took a head start on the deconstruction of his own ideas. Yeah. Without really setting up. No, it's like it's kind of really the, jarring. That idea. To like, it is jarring. Yeah. Like all of a sudden the heroes of the OT are now <laughs> assholes. And they're sort of I think that's why that whole idea went over our heads initially, right? Yeah, like, exactly. I think the idea that the Jedi were these arrogant pricks and just... You know who symbolizes that or kind of lives that to its fullest out of the Jedi Council? Big dickhead Kiati Mundi. I fucking love Kiati though. Oh, but he's the biggest asshole Jedi of them all. Yeah. Anytime he talks, he's like, I'm just going to spew out Jedi ideological nonsense and be like... Oh, but fucking—he is like the—he is like try and quote the most cookie cutter Jedi there is. Yeah, but he's also cool, so leave him alone. I love. <laughs> <laughs> he used to be one of my favorites back in the day, but man, not anymore. He's just a fucking dickhead. What? Okay. Oh, uh, is the, Count Dooku was no, that pun intended? He's a intended? idealist. He's no He's no assassin. Oh, f- is that pun intended? What? You calling him a dickhead? What, dickhead? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll let I'll let people watch the movie and see what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, uh, oh fuck! I don't know what's happening with my phone. My charge is plugged in, but the visual keeps cutting out. That's it's weird. Okay. Poor connection. Uh, it's my charge, I think. Yeah, but um, yeah. So it is jarring. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. We're seeing the guardians of peace and justice in the light. But wait, why are they pricks? Right? Like immediately, they're assholes. Yes. And um, when we first see uh. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan kind of talk about Anakin. Do you remember that that moment when uh, Obi-Wan's like, oh, we're going to bring another l- worthless piece of life form with us on this trip? Like, yeah. 
talking about Anakin, right? But that's the thing with Qui-Gon. I think Qui-Gon's an important character to sort of be the one that follows this because, or be the first int- the Jedi you're introduced to because he is more prototypical, like Luke-like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, like, as the movie goes along, you sort of see how he um, doesn't actually get along with the Jedi Council and the Jedi Council. Well, he's not even a part of the Council. They didn't even grant him... I know because uh, he's sort of a troublemaker where he sort of, yeah, he adheres to, um, the code, but he has original ideals of what the Jedi used to be, not what they are now because they got, you know, big headed and bloated with their success. Right. He sort of lives on that initial idealistic moment of, of what a Jedi should be that, you know, is the embodiment of Luke. Right. And he want, that's what he wanted Anakin to be. Um, and yep. that's why he sort of shielded them from the Jedi Council. And, you know, we'll get into that a little later, but that's like, mm-hmm. I've heard criticisms that the the main fight didn't really have stakes, but I think you and I both watched Dave Filoni's thoughts on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we'll get into that later. But um, I, yeah, I think I, sorry, go um, on. I really like Qui-Gon in this movie. I don't know why. Hmm. Well, you said it. I think you, you said it perfectly. He is the. He is the ideal Jedi. He is like, there's a line from Qui-Gon Jinn to Luke Skywalker, right? Where you could almost look at Qui-Gon as the original master. Like, not even Master Yoda. Like, Qui-Gon is Empire Strikes Back Master Yoda in this movie. In the sense of, like, the wisdom that he gives, the perception of the Force that he has. Like, you know, like, Mm -hmm. he is, and and Dave Filoni kind of said this, so I'm going to quote him, but he's the father figure that Anakin needed. Yes. But the one that he didn't get. Right, And that's why the events of Star Wars unfold the way that they fold out is because Qui-Gon knowingly took this kid away from his family, his mom, and knowingly put this guy in a position where he's saying, I'm, we're going to put this, we're going to thrust this immense amount of responsibility on you being the chosen one. You have to wipe out this entire evil force and I'm going to train you. I'm going to make sure you don't sway off because I know the the challenges that come with this, right? Obi-Wan's thinking like no like this this is too dangerous everybody all the other Jedi had that thought that it's too dangerous this is too unpredictable we shouldn't do this right everyone had sort of a negative reaction to Anakin except for Qui-Gon you know and that's why Qui-Gon that makes me think who's yeah but who's right or wrong there right I honestly think you know because the I mean in sense the Jedi like as much as we want to disagree and call them arrogant assholes, their fears, right? As much as they say, you know, don't live in fear, or whatever. They their fear was justified in that moment, right? But what if that would any of that have manifested had Anakin been properly trained? Right. Is that what you're gonna say? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that fear almost, uh, like led to that. Maybe I don't know. That opened that path up a little more. Yeah, fear is a path to the dark side, right? Yeah, so exactly. Um. Let's move along. Did we even get okay. to Anakin's introduction yet? No. No, we haven't. Uh, not yet. Yeah, this is this movie is like almost really jarring when it like jumps from place to place. Like they're on Naboo for a while, like a really long time before they get to uh before they get to Tatooine. Right. And um, yeah. Wh- why don't you start us off with Anakin's introduction? Uh, fuck. I. I really don't like Anakin in this movie, man. I mean, like, 
the actor did what they could, but I'm guessing George's direction wasn't the greatest. Um, the dialogue was really cringe. Um, whoopee is comes to mind, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's like it's kind of weird. Again, like George kickstarting this deconstruction of his own ideas where here you have space Hitler in the OT and then you get to see him as a little slave boy. And, um, Mm. you know, that's really jarring when you actually think about it in context to the story. Um, Mm, very jarring. It's, um, but it, it makes sense in a way, no? Yeah, it does in a way. Almost just by, just by that setup alone, like acting dialogue aside. Cause I don't, I still, in my head, this is not the true Anakin Skywalker. Like, no disrespect to the actor that plays him. I, I don't think George should have casted, like, a kid this young. And then in the next movie, it's... I think his hands know, were Hayden tied. ...who is, like, his hands were tied. But that was his own That was his own thing. That's what he wanted to do. Like, he set it up in a weird way. Like, the love relationship between him and Padme. Like, it's too weird in this movie. It is very weird. He's a, he's a little kid. And she's a queen. But she's a teenager. So, like, I don't know. Yeah, it's... I forget the age difference, but it is weird. Um, and uh, they just keep giving looks to each other, and you're thinking like, "What? what how long is she gonna wait for you, man?" Yeah, no, it, that's wait. the that's the big thing in the meme community. Um, is that Padme preys on underage kids? But uh, um, he, well, she's a predator. Yeah. Um, but I think it's like when you actually look at it figuratively, like when he actually like. Instead of just saying, oh, it's creepy, that means bad. It's like, well, it's kind of like an Oedipus complex. You know what I mean? Have you? Are you familiar yeah. with the Oedipus complex? I am. I yeah. am, yeah. So, you know, in the removal of any sort of parental figure, um, that being his mother, um, and then Qui-Gon sort of, you know, spoilers, dying at the end, he lost his father figure. Um, he immediately grabs onto the closest two closest things. So you have Obi Wan, and then you have Padme. Um, mm. And with that, yeah, you know, that becomes his family. Yeah, you know, and then famously, Sigmund Freud thinks that everybody, every guy, secretly wants to fuck his mom. So um, that sort of weird creepiness is like, you know, it's manifested from the situation he was plunged into. You know, this is not a normal situation. Um, and again, it's just, this is just George either accidentally, which I think a lot of the things that George does is by accident, um, or purposely like deconstructing the media he made to begin with. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of like, again, everything just dives back down to, you know, the Jedi really aren't this omnipotent, um, force of good. They had you know extreme flaws as any sort of bloated bureaucratic establishment does so you know and that's one reason i really like the prequels is it does critique that bloated bureaucratic thing that is so present within today as well although that's not what george would tell you because i think it was by accident again george says it was potentially a critique of the george bush administration but it's like Mm -hmm. that's not how I see it. It's sort of, um, it's sort of like a revolution sort of history. The entire trilogy, more more akin to like the communist revolution or the French revolution, and 
Are you talking about the the prequel trilogy? Yeah, the entire prequel trilogy, in general. But um, yeah, I don't know. You say you say he wasn't aware of his ideas. I think he was really aware of his ideas. I, I think he's I think aware like of he's, some of his ideas. I think a lot of the shit he did was by accident. You know what I mean? I don't know. I I, I don't know. I think I think his he has some really solid like thematic ideas in place that you know they whether he at the time knew it or not but he was aware of them because a lot of things just they continue throughout the series like whether it's the prequels or the shows or even the sequels for that matter but there are like even the dialogue right there's certain things like why would you why would he write that but then i think like there's other things that are so specifically written that i think he must have scrutinized over all of this like he must have really thought about what are the words these guys are saying and what is the impact of this on on the greater story um and yeah you know sometimes things didn't work or people have different interpretations like i think it's one of those things that it will always be timeless you know his interpret or his uh influence or reasoning behind it might have been the uh the george bush administration and the war on iraq or whatever but you can still look at this today and like be like oh the original star wars even is is really significant of today's world and today's cultural problems or whatever and you know i think that comes with just knowing storytelling knowing the world knowing ideas all that so yeah it's it's tough to say that he wasn't aware because otherwise star wars wouldn't be star wars today i think i'm not saying like but every he, good idea he, he no, had i know what was you mean like you know not by accident i think he is a visionary you know obviously he wouldn't be a billionaire if he wasn't um no and if you hear the people he's collaborated with like the guy was a really like kind of timid speaker from what i've what i've read about him or just kind of like a soft-spoken person but he was really uh strong-willed in his ideas so like he had like creating star wars like he had rules that he wanted people to follow in terms of the design in terms of how he wanted things to look and feel and sound and you know all of these things all i mean all these people were creating things out of george's mind so, you know, people, when people ask me things like, well, why don't you like stuff like Halo or Lord of the Rings when you do like fantasy elements and stuff like that? I think it's because something Star Wars does so well, whether it's in the prequels, the sequels or the OT, is it has like such a like a, a like a universal uh, like language almost like you just look at it and you know this is Star Wars. And I'm sure people can say that about a billion other franchises, but it it just has this like you you know like you look at a a, a, a one of the the oval lights in star wars like the long elongated wall panel lights and you're like i know what location this is i know exactly where this is i know what this is and who uh what decor or what kind of faction uses this kind of decor you know what i mean like it has this really uh just basic and structured design language i guess really simply to put it um and like so yeah that's just to go show like this guy had a focus on every aspect of the movie whether like his ideas got trimmed out or people brought new ideas in like even in this he everything kind of continues forward like the world of Tatooine, even though it's way different from hoth or way different from fucking naboo like the language continues forward i think yeah i 100 percent agree that you know if someone is as meticulous with that it's just that you know creativity is good and all but it needs to be reined in and that's why you know when you have you know with any medium especially you know i'm i'm big into 
into music, into rock bands. And, you know, you have my, like one of my favorite bands, Metallica, and you have James Hetfield. And then, um, he's this crazy, crazy, ambitious, super creative guy, but that can kind of get out of hand and he needed his drummer Lars to reel him in and, and vice versa. Like Lars was super ambitious and creative, but you needed James to reel him in as well. It's like, you know, when you let the creativity flow as you do, it's like sometimes you accidentally make crazy shit. Um, mm-hmm. And you know what? I'm not even saying that's a bad thing that somebody thinks he did was by accident. That just go. That just, you know, is proof of concept as to how um, how visionary he really is. Because mm-hmm. um, it takes like someone who's really meticulous with their world building to to be able to just accidentally make something as fantastic as as the world building is in the prequels. And I I think not even just the prequels, like the prequels were a surefire thing to be made, not in the sense of being great or successful. Like they are great and successful to me, but there was no doubt that a billion people were going to watch the prequels, right? The OT, on the other hand, when like the weekend it came out, it only came out, I think like 40 something theaters in Los Angeles. Like it didn't even have a worldwide premiere like that. And, you know, not knowing whether this thing is going to be, a surefire hit and i think the star wars first star wars to come out and be a success is the greatest like dice roll in the history of like movies like the the probability of that thing coming together and being what it was and and received as it was and being like that good for the time it was and as forward thinking and forward pushing of technology and everything it was a perfect storm of people of ideas and everything you know, like you take John Williams away from Star Wars, you don't have Star Wars anymore. You have something completely different. Right. We we might have like had a completely different reaction to watching, you know, ep- if we came in in episode one. So like if Duel of the Face wasn't a thing and it was like some other thing, like I remember hearing George Lucas wanted to use like real classical music for the score. No original score, but like from human music. And John Williams was like, are you nuts? Like this is not the world to be doing that in like you should create operatic like grand epic music for this so that was pure john williams like and i would argue john williams is like the anchor to star wars like i really don't know what going forward it's gonna be like uh, without that kind of influence of sound like you know the mandalorian is doing its own thing and they got ludwig goronson the the um music producer behind like a lot of great artists like childish gambino and um produced a lot of uh scores for like movies like the black panther and stuff like that and he did recently the mandalorian and he was like he was talking about it very inspired by john williams but he knew you know you can't remake john williams no. like that's forever gonna stand in its own pillar I can of star wars tell you right now because halo has a lot of parallels within star wars including the legendary composer marty o'donnell um who composed halo score you know you obviously heard halo's main theme it's iconic um, and he did leave the series for Halo 4 and 5 and it was immediately noticeable and mm-hmm. people tried to you know move on and make their own things and differentiate themselves from you know the first three Halo games with Marty's music and it just you know didn't work you know and um, that's what they are attempting to do with Infinite 
Halo Infinite is sort of and even bring it back to what it was. But like that's what I mean. Like you're totally right in in terms of like the composer being a cornerstone of you know integral. Yeah, yeah. and and maybe not in all things. You know, like it definitely happens where composers come in and out. But I think like what John Williams bringing up, what you're saying, like Marty brought to Halo, like it's just that iconic iconicness that just builds on iconicness like right like everything in star wars is iconic Mm -hmm. the names the designs the everything and you you can't just stumble on that like the guy must have been like a little insecure or anxious like should i really go out in the world and call this thing a wookie like will people fuck with that like will people like that like you know who who knew at the time there was nothing to compare it to and like today it's almost like people are of course, people are going to make those risks. It's like Star Wars paid off. So like, oh yeah, like we have a backing to try it. To be fair, like the, I think we've had this conversation before in terms of like fantasy writing and um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Tolkien having the influence he did and how successful that was. So it's like, mm-hmm. um, I think world building was getting popular because Tolkien's books were so influential to so many young storytellers. Like They'll tell you like, you know, reading through the, uh, the the Lord of the Rings and how absolutely fleshed out this entire world was in terms of religious structure, in terms of creation myths, in terms of the races, the conflicts, everything. It's like, yeah, go for it. And but that's the thing; it's hard to fucking pull off. And and George mm-hmm. is able to create some sort of landscape to where it's as expandable as Middle Earth if not, you know, the most expandable setting within the history of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get back to the scenes we were watching. Yes. Or, like, at least the movie that we're talking about. You know what? I knew um, this would fucking happen. I knew we would get to this movie, and we ended up just talking about George, because yeah. this movie is... <laughs> I think that's how the whole series is going to go. We're going to talk a lot about George. But I love the guy, man. Like, I truly think he's a great dude. It's unfair, I think, how much shit was tossed on people like George and uh, the guy that plays Jar Jar. I wanted to talk about Jar Jar also from this movie because I think he was so serviceable for the movie. Like, I did you ever have a problem with Jar Jar growing up watching the movies? No, but I could see why people would. I could see why, yeah, adults might. And like I could be like, okay, yeah, there was nothing really like this in the original, so it's a bit disorienting, but... it's a fucking kids movie right like it's who cares like if you don't like it you don't like it but did he ruin the movie no he didn't ruin the movie he made me laugh a couple times to be honest Uh, he he was pretty annoying like let's let's actually like look at like the battle scene no i'm being a hundred percent real bro yo the gungans get into it the gungans and the droids darth jar jar Darth uh, jar jar i'm just gonna say that i'm just gonna say that that's headcanon for me that is headcanon for me that's headcanon yeah. To be honest, that's the explanation. To be that's honest, that could have been absolutely genius if Jar Jar wasn't such like an actual bumbling idiot. If he was less so, if he was scaled back, and if he was like yeah, more humanoid, like that twist. Well, you see, Drunken Master by Jackie Chan, right? Yeah. Uh, there was a comparison made to to that, right? Like Jackie Chan has this fighting style where he he, he drinks alcohol to throw off and like acts drunk or he is drunk and to basically throw off his enemies. Yeah. It's it's a it's like how Batman uses theatrics to. I was just watching Batman Begins the other day. That's why I'm bringing it up. But um, you know the he, the whole idea of using theatrics and warfare, um, 
so yeah like i i agree with you if they scaled that back a little bit it, it might have looked like and they think or they displayed him in a way of like yeah he's clumsy but not just lucky like it's it's like maybe a little bit of that drunken if he, if he had on, some sort of like actual value to the party if you know what i mean like yeah he did what he like he did help yeah. them get through the trench or whatever yeah um but at that point he didn't have to be in the movie after that no, right? exactly he had no inherent value within the party he was he george thought yeah, we he didn't need to go to tattooing comic relief and a companion yeah, yeah. so but in, okay if you took jar jar out of the tattooing scenes i think tattooing would have been a lot blander i don't know man um I, like, I, I get, on, I like get the, what you mean. The pod like, racing bit, the 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 pod racing bit when he fucking numbs his tongue and shit, like that shit is classic. I still it, laugh. At I all do those laugh moments. at those as well. But um, if we're actually thinking about Jar Jar leaving the story after that, then yeah, like you know, different supplemental material could have been used instead. But mm. um, mm-hmm. it is um, like from like an actual writing standpoint, like. He had no purpose to the story after that. Other, other than, than that other than bit. like he's, he yeah. needed to be in the story for the Gungian um, unification with the Nabooians later in the story. Yeah, right. That was like, but see, they could have built they could have built like a legit arc around him with that. Right, right. Because in the beginning of the movie, he's uh, like a cast out or a castaway from his tribe yeah. of Gungians, um, and at the end of the movie, he's now a warrior and like fighting alongside them. So I think. There is something there of an arc. We just don't see it, or it's not really given. It's to really us jarring. Detail. It's like it's very skippy. It's like here. It's skippy. Uh, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, now let's finish this. It's like it's it's. There's not that constant progression. Like, uh, how could you have progression with Jar Jar? He's fucking Jar Jar. But like, it's it's weird. It's it, he's just like. Again, like if going back, like, put my nostalgic goggles on. Like, of course, I fucking love Jar Jar. I thought he was hilarious as a kid, and I still laugh at some of the shit he does now. And, um, but nostalgic goggles off, he was sort of obviously an extremely annoying character that had little to no service to the actual story. And yeah, um, that's that's the obvious thing. He's just a ca- comic relief character, right? And I think you can do that, but if you give that character a better purpose in the story. Like, I I like the setup. I really like the opening of when, uh, you know, Qui-Gon is in Naboo and he's running away from the, the destroyers that are on his trail. Yeah. And, like, he runs into Jar Jar, saves his life, and Jar Jar's like, oh, now I, you, I owe you a life debt. Like, we never see that pay off. We never see this kind of uh, life debt situation, I think. Like, you know, this whole, like, Jar Jar it sets up something for Jar Jar mm-hmm. it sets up it sets up a lot actually you know but it's just kind of like at the end like he's still a clumsy idiot and you know he's cool with everybody now yeah not much has changed and yeah but at least, you know we don't get much of him going forward and I don't know if people realize this but Jar Jar is low-key the reason there's an empire right yeah yeah that, that's an episode two though so three is it two or two. three when they grant the okay. chancellor immediate actions to emergency yeah, powers. Yeah. So that's okay, episode yeah. two. So we'll get it to that when we get to that. Right. Cause then he, yeah, then he builds a clone army. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting stuff there. <laughs> so moving along. What are we at next? 
Yeah, they st- again they stay on Tatooine for a minute. You know, pod racing. Let's get into pod okay, racing. Okay, here's the thing: like pod racing in terms of like it's a huge amount of screen time for such a small plot point. But like in terms of 1999, holy shit, man! Stands up oh today. My God, absolutely stands up today. Yep, I love the pod racing. Scene. Yeah, I, I was watching this with my mom, and she goes, like, my mom acts like she's watching every movie for the first time ever. Even though I know, like, I've, like, sat down and watched Star Wars with her, like, a billion times. So, she's like, holy fuck, Sid, how did they shoot this? Is this CGI? And I was like, actually, mom, that's practical effects. All the stands, all the, the stadium setting, like, they built that. So, that look, that's real. And then there's digital layers of people and shit like that, aliens and whatever added on. But, like, this is, like, George pioneering the next 20 years of movies. Because, like, I watch this on my 4K TV, but still, like, holy fuck, these effects really stand up the test of time, I think. Like, yeah, it's 1999, it looks like it, kind of, in some spots it's spotty, but, you know, for having the first, like, on-screen motion-captured uh, actor, like, like Ahmed Best playing Jar Jar, like, that was, I think, the first actual mocap done on-screen with live actors in, in, in the same scene, and, you know, like, that level of uh integration of practical and digital like people give george a lot of flack for the overuse of green screen and cgi and whatever and like yeah we can think that now in 2020 when technology is what it is and movies are made in a more kind of practical sense now but if he hadn't done what he did with the prequels we wouldn't have movies like avatar we wouldn't have most of like the feats of technology we have today or at least it would have held us back to the point we are, you know? Yeah. So, like, I, I appreciate this scene so much for it's, like, truly it's filmmaking qualities. It is anything, it is you know? a history piece for film filmmaking school, Yeah, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. It, weird to think about this goofy story in terms of, like, it having such influence on the future of filmmaking. But it really did. And this is the mm-hmm. pod raising scene really is one of those scenes that exemplifies that. Um to its fullest extent it's like jesus christ this was shot in 1999 i still can't comprehend it yeah i still can't comprehend it fully like that this was made and like we're seeing it and you know people i it must have been so frustrating i think to like really perfect that scene you i if you ever see like the developments of movies made in that era of like the early 2090s if you've ever seen like pre-cgi finalization like when before it's all rendered and shit it looks like ps1 graphics and like i I can't wrap my head around like the artist thinking like we have to get this from cubes and of a flat color to real life type of looking environments. And and they did that like, you know, like that it's so convinced, like it's so convincing. It's so good. Like everything about it, the motion blur effects, the, you know, the, the, the big wide shot they have when the, the pod racers are like just skimming over the desert and there's like the mirage, like, that's unbelievably mm-hmm. good. Like each shot in the pod race sequence can stand out like as its own yeah. picture. Individually, yeah. a pod racing sequence is fantastic. In terms of actual movie structure, though, that's is where we continue to talk about like George maybe going too far, where him having like, you know, unquestionably this great idea of pod racing. Like it really is a cool concept and it, it really does build the world. Um, again, I. I applaud the world building of the prequels, but it's like, this takes up a lot of precious screen time, which 
could have been used elsewhere. Um, but again, it's like that's a that's a nitpick in terms of like actual story structure because that's where I think this movie still bothers me. You know, when I take nostalgia goggles off, is actual story structure and yeah, you know. But do you feel like that the sequence gets in the way of your experience of watching the movie? Like, are you thinking, Dan, I really want to get over this so we can get to Coruscant? Is that what you're thinking? Sometimes. Sometimes I actually, like, yeah. through some watches, it's like, yeah, it's like, oh, like, okay, yeah, here's the pod racing segment. And then I'll be watching it. It's like, okay, this is still happening. And, you know, the consequences of how much screen time this is is just Anakin being freed, which is, a, you know, granted a big deal. But, like... You know, um, and I really do like action scenes and special effects, and I really do like how George forwarded special effects and action scenes for future filmmaking. But again, like the thing I value the most within movies and within storytelling is character development and characters. And, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't help but think that, you know, while Anakin's out here, we could have had more Qui Gon and Anakin talking and, and sitting down yeah. and, you know, making that moment. Um, that Dave Filoni talked about later within this movie, like a little more clear. That's fair. That's completely fair. Because I think it's also like the the sequence is cool. I think because it's like it's Anakin just kind of like progressing through the race. So like it is a little long and drawn out because he starts at last. He has to get to first and whatever, and same three laps and almost a similar shots just over and over again. Um, but something I really like about that scene in general is the beginning, how it starts, and you see. That like that's what sets up the stakes of the race, um, where him and uh, Watto are making the deal over like freeing Anakin essentially, and like this is all in Qui Gon's head. Like he knows he's got to free Anakin, but he plays it off like, okay, no, like give me both the slaves for the race. Like I'll put my ship on the line, but you know, like let's free both the slaves. And he Watto's like, not a chance. Like bro, you're not getting both slaves. It's not worth it. And I, I watch this really closely. Qui-Gon gives off a small smirk before he says, okay, the boy then. Because he knows for sure, Watto being who he is, a gambler or whatever, like that's his personality, he'll go for a bet. He, he's so cocky in himself, he knows uh is going to cheat or whatever that he'll go for any bet. Might as well play off the stakes a little higher to get what he really wants, mm-hmm. right? So then Watto plays it off like, okay, well, let's roll for it. And then, you know, Red and Blue will decide if you get the mother or... Skywalker and at this moment you see who Qui-Gon is as a character right he uses the force to manipulate the die to work in his favor mm-hmm. and I remember watching some like was that something a Jedi would do right actually yeah I think it would be you can see that within like oh, any it's Jedi? very Obi-Wan like in episode four you know what I mean right it, no I I agree with you and that's I think that's because this all leads back to Qui-Gon I think Qui-Gon is like the almost like a headmaster, like his his own Qui Gon Jedi ideology, gets passed on to Obi Wan, which gets passed on to Luke. Right? Here's the thing, though. I, like at first, Obi Wan might miss out that lesson. I think in this episode and even the second and the third, mm-hmm. until he loses like the fight with Anakin, he doesn't fully grasp Obi uh, Qui Gon's teachings. No, I don't. Until he he doesn't until after Episode Three. That's what I'm saying. Until after the fight with Anakin. Yeah, he doesn't realize that till later and you know i hope they do touch upon that within the obi-wan show yeah i really hope there's some more qui-gon elements i yeah i think there will be dude i'm so excited for that unironically like fucking i hate disney star wars um 
a lot of it. But they like credit credit to them. They are putting their money in some good places now. Yes, they are. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, no pod racing. Um, one last quick thing on this section sound. No, but hold on. You were, yeah, go on. I, I want to hear your thought though. What you were saying, like how the Jedi, if the Jedi would do that or not, like what makes you think oh, other Jedi would have acted like that? Because, um, the Jedi aren't like some, um, manifestation of good, you know, or, um, you know, they don't just, they don't, they don't not lie and cheat. They're kind of like, um, they do everything necessary to fulfill their moral code. And specifically, like, within the OT, that's Qui-Gon's moral code. And then here, it's definitely Qui-Gon's moral code because it's literally Qui-Gon. But um, uh, it's sort of, like, again, one of those examples of Qui-Gon being not your typical Jedi because you wouldn't expect Obi-Wan to do that. In in, yeah. in episode one, Obi Wan, not episode four, but um, no. you wouldn't yeah. expect yeah. Yoda to do that. You wouldn't expect any of these. It's like it's it is a sleazy thing not to Mace, do. Not Kiati. Yeah, that was Qui Gon playing by his rules. That's how I saw it. Yeah, he has he has his goals and he has agency with agency within those goals, and that's yeah not what uh you know, that's not something that can be said about you know this is a valid criticism of the Jedi in this series is like they don't really have a lot of goals or agency like their goals and agency sort of devolve around beating the sith but it's like you kind of need more individual goals to get attached to in terms of a character and you know i still like in, the amount of flaws like this movie has and i, I do think qui-gon stands the test of time but in terms of like actually like a great star wars character and i don't think he gets nearly as much credit to where it's due and i don't think his, his character has been explored as much as it should be explored. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot, there's a bigger well there. Just like you can make like a Qui-Gon philosophy of his own. Yeah. And just detail that in its own, you know, book or whatever it is. But he's, yeah, he's one of the cooler Jedis out there. And it's like, he preaches this thing, like not outwardly saying it or anything, but just through his actions, which that's something, see, like, that's another thing that's not really appreciated as much in this is, not like there for as much talking and sitting down and talking there is in this movie a lot of stuff is d- displayed through the actions of the characters and this might lend to what you were saying about maybe it was unintentional or whatever but maybe it was coming of a place of like almost like subconsciousness you know like he was like not fully aware of the relation of all these things but like deep down you know like he had something like you know like he he was obviously thinking like the jedi aren't this great fully noble fully born in the light kind of organization so in writing qui-gon you see the contrast I, with the i do think that's everybody. intentional though because this this that, pops up yeah. so much throughout the movie what i'm talking about is like you get a lot of little things that are kind of subtly brilliant within the prequels and it's like i can't really attribute that to george's genius because a lot of shit could have gotten away in terms of how that was presented but like qui-gon's character being this sort of like lone wolf almost, lone wolf or... like seeing the the coming fall of the jedi before it's happening it's like he always right yeah, yeah that's a big part it's like yeah. he understood that within this bureaucratic bloated state that the jedi are in they will fall hard from their ivory tower that is so high up there 
So yeah, this connects something to episode two that I think I'll bring up again in episode two. But when Dooku is like, he has Obi-Wan prisoner and shit. And he's like, well, if your master is here in this situation, I know he would join me. You know, like Dooku was Qui-Gon's master. And, and so there's a line from, from Yoda to Dooku to Qui-Gon. And you can see a little bit of that in, in Dooku in that he's like, he's probably like Qui-Gon probably learned a lot from him. Um, like probably took a lot of that defiance or like independence from Dooku mm-hmm. and Dooku ran with that to like an extreme level, but you can see that kind of connection. There. That's what I think. It's like, I like, although Dooku may have been his teacher, I think Qui-Gon individually developed his own character and rubbed off on Dooku eventually. And right. Dooku sort of right. took that and ran with it again in that extreme direction, like you said, but that's episode two talk. Right. Um, yeah. Let's sort of get moving forward get past the pod racing. So, yeah, pod racing adds, like, a lot of more time in Tatooine. And you're right. I, I guess by the end of it, I want to see, like, where is all this going? And, like, what is this leading up to, essentially? And and now we get to Coruscant, right? Where, basically, we see Palpatine starting to play his games a little bit in the manipulation of the Senate and Padme and trying to do his thing and and it's not fully clear at first what his game plan is like you obviously know like this guy's the emperor he's going to be the emperor he's the big bad sith and whatever but the pieces aren't as clear as to like what the involvement of like naboo or padme and shit like i think he'd be really confused Uh, about who this guy is and why all of a sudden he has so much screen time if this was your first star wars movie you know what i mean for sure for sure if you're not aware of like the emperor and like but again, like we weren't really like watching this for the first time. I'm, I keep thinking back to like how lucky like this movie is kind of to get like young kids like us when we were younger, like really hooked on the story and like, being, like yeah, I want to watch four five and six now to see all how all this kind of played out. It's amazing because it, you're right. Like it's it's not spelled out for you as clearly as the originals give it to you. Like, oh, there's the guy in the hood. He's obviously the big bad guy and he's called the emperor and he has a dark croaking voice it can't get much more clear than that right here it's like again george deconstructing everything which he's already given you but like this is all about deconstruction this is all about the meticulousness about who palpatine is Mm -hmm. as a as a as a senator as a politician as a leader and all that stuff right um in terms of like if you do have the context behind it in terms of a character introduction like uh i love it i love sheev's introductions this movie his first couple scenes really play off of his like like secret manipulative um character he betrays like you see him sort of like have these even within like the as early as the first few scenes you see him have these twisting personalities with him talking in Queen Abadado's ear you know just like whispering shit to her it's like come on fucking do it fucking like he he's been waiting yeah exactly he's been waiting for years for this moment and you can tell he's just sal- yeah. salvating at, at at him yeah, manipulating but he maintains his calm yeah cuz right? he, like he's like he has such composure yeah. at the same time he's so like it's like he's been cooking the steak for years and he just mm-hmm. cut into it with the blockade and now he's taking his first bite with his manipulation of the senate and it's like you can see he's yeah. like drooling and he's but he's confident in the craft he's created and it's yeah. great i love sheev in this movie i'm watching it right now and his like his whole like portrayal in every single scene is 
this is where like George's best directing comes out because this is where he knows how things like really clearly in his head work where what he's setting up like this is where I think he really visualized things clearly and you know with when it comes to Sheev and his idea of how a republic turns into an empire and obviously boring a lot from history and stuff but each shot I'm seeing him in is like it's visually purposeful like he's always standing over Amidala he's always talking down to her she's looking at him in fear like even though he's an ally she can't trust him so therefore we can't trust him but at the same time he's talking all nicely and he's all like no like we gotta you know we're friends we're we're gonna find peace in this together but then you still see that like shade of politician bullshit right you're like don't trust this guy don't you know like don't buy into his shit even though we don't know yet he's gonna be the emperor Mm -hmm. so i think this is like in these key moments where palpatine is writing directing all that Boom. Like this is George at his finest. I'm just watching the scene where he's he's uh he's talking to Amidala in like when they just first arrive at Coruscant and now they're transitioning into the Jedi Temple, so like what's about to happen here? Uh oh, yeah. so here's, now Qui Gon is presenting Anakin to the council yeah. and all that. Here's one thing I'd like to say about like Sheev in terms of um Sir E. McCullough. Um he reminds me a lot of in terms of like commitment to his portrayal of like this odd character within an, an odd set of circumstances, like I know this is like really random, but like Jim Leahy out of Trailer Park Boys, he is Trailer Park yeah, Boys. He's played by a classical actor, and yeah, E. McKellett is a classical actor as well. And these guys just like yeah, you know, it's so cool seeing them embody something that isn't like that serious but they take that role so seriously and it really creates magic so that's all i'm gonna say on that that's a that's an awesome comparison to jim lee r.i.p big r.i.p oh yeah absolutely but that's a that's true it's like he fully just embodies this role like character of just like the menacing palpatine you know like and everything that that the weight of all that and like it just, I can't wait to, like, get to the OT and just now start connecting dots to, like, even though he's not big in episode four, like, he's really just prominent in episode five. But, like, even, in, you know, the last scene of this when he, he talks to Skywalker, he's like, I'm going to watch your career with great interest yeah, yeah, yeah. after this. Like, that's the most, that's the stake in the heart. That's when you're like, you know where this is going. You know where he's going to lead you, bro. And, like, all that. And this is his movie. This is his franchise more as much as it is a Skywalker franchise or story right like well that's what JJ i think, I think he's almost as but... integral uh, yeah he took it almost a little too literally but i i'll save it for episode nine talk but that is definitely i i, I appreciated that the the whole tying in of, of those two families and those problems you know i like that i thought it was very incesty um anyways so yeah anakin's introduction to the jedi council really is your first glimpse at how different these new Jedi are. Like how arrogant, how asshole-ish they are. Um, And I know like for a lot of people that was a criticism was the Jedi are unlikable. And to that, I say, yeah, that's that's the point. point. I hate, I hate being that guy. That's like, yeah, but that's the point. But like, it literally is the point of the trilogy when you think about it. And, um, mm-hmm. 
in terms of like what this scene accomplishes, it does it well. What's your interpretation of like, cause I know, and they, the more I watch the prequels, like I realize the whole thing about the prophecy and the chosen one thing, it's not as clear cut as it's supposed to be like coming. I think about when I watched these movies as a kid and I would hear the whole thing with the chosen one prophecy. And I was like, yeah, this is like, this is the art. Like this is the anchor point of all of star Wars. Like Anakin Skywalker is the chosen one, but did he fuck up or did he do what the chosen one was supposed to do? And there was like a transfer of power almost like to his son after that. And like now Luke is the chosen one maybe. Right. So there's throughout all the movies that you're just constantly questioning this line of chosen. I still think he ends up being the chosen one. I think George talked about this. That's what I want to ask you. Like, what is your interpretation of the chosen one? He fulfills the prophecy of the force. He ends being the emperor. Okay. So that, that is your thing of balance. Like that's when he did that. Yeah. Like everything, like despite, episode three ending in tragedy this everything was as the force intended right and yoda says this in episode three he says a prophecy misread could be something like that butchering yoda talk but he says something like that which is like again outlining the flaw of the jedi to think we own the chosen one he's our agent of good right when clearly we were told time and time again the force doesn't choose sides the force is the force right. it's balance it is what it is and when you got the jedi and your high ivory towel tower of fucking mm-hmm. like everything that they are like yeah like you're it's time to get knocked down a yeah bit, exactly right? that's like, what happens in terms of like balance of the force it's like in terms of the prophecy like everything that happened was intended he brought balance to the force in both ways yeah. he broke down the ivory in tower how however yeah. tragic that was he broke down the ivory tower it was going to fall it needed to fall right but that gave rise to the sith but eventually he destroyed the sith as well so he went through a full arc of knowing the sides of good bad to like landing in the middle like now he knows both flavors he's touched both absolutes yeah. and by the end of it he's we hope because we never see it again Right, like we hope he's equally in a good place. Mm-hmm. That's my head canon. I don't know, but um, till it gets but yeah, done by the sequels. But I'll get that in episode yeah. seven. I I think the whole thing of Anakin, what at least like this movie tries to go about, and the more I think about it, like he's supposed to represent balance, like obviously, but his arc starting off as a slave child and then going to being a tyrannical ruler, it's pretty on the nose when it comes to to like you look at a scale or if you look at like a visualization of balance and there's like the polar opposite sides like okay this guy started off as an oppressed slave to the oppressor Mm -hmm. right so his whole arc is about going across that scale that spectrum Mm -hmm. of of life of like whatever like star wars is obviously an an analogy for life in general i think like it's like the greatest story about life like i i truly believe like if somebody watched star wars and took the time to like read the messages george was trying to put in there like all the funny bullshit family stuff aside, like really get into the philosophy of what he was trying to put. There's a lot of meaningful stuff that it is like we've talked about this before. It is modern day mythos. It is like Greek myths. You have these mythical characters that it's all of it. It's just, it's, it's histories of human storytelling, mythology, cultures, like generations of all that Mm -hmm. kind of funneled into an accessible thing, which is movies and sci-fi and awesome fun lasers and shit like that. It's accessible mythology. Myths in like I've I've always 
I think I've talked, I don't know if I've talked about on the podcast. I've talked about you though, like myths in general were used as a means to orient yourself within the world and act as one would, right? Stories were examples to people as to how to orient yourself within the world and how to act, right? And that's sort of what Star Wars is now. It's this modern day mythos, you know, despite six of the nine mainline movies not being that good um it still has that you know that capacity to tell those stories of morality and human nature and Mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly more so in the ot than the other two but yeah yeah where yeah where the 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 pt i guess is the deconstruction of all of that which is cool in its own way and like a psychological kind of understanding of it because i think you know, like, we wouldn't be talking this in-depthly about Star Wars, almost. We, we might, but, like, the prequels almost give us that outlet to look at things a little bit, digging, like, dig deeper, right? Into into war, into, like, we could talk about all this in the OT, but it never gave us that. It never gave us these these different outlets of looking at, at the shades of war or, or good and bad. Like, you were just like, like, okay, like, fair. At the time, you know, there was literally coming off of a war going into another war like vietnam and world war ii like you're sandwiched in the middle of that that's the period this movie came out right so and at that time culturally or socially or whatever the way america works is okay like we are the good guys and they are the bad guys very clear in day right there's no not much gray area, not much morality in a sense to think about it's really like or people and right like george was this like a hippie kind of guy like he must have been thinking about all these things like he must have been thinking like okay like this is just this must be deeper than we're americans and we're the good guys and vietnam is the bad enemy and you know like no like what if we are the empire what if we are the tyrannical rulers like and i think that he said that like this is like it's not in the sense of like oh like i'm an american writing a story that represents america so therefore america is the good guys or like he's representing that as the rebels like if you look at star wars like the rebels if you compare to real life would be the vietnamese shoulders and the empire would be america right it's like so he was fully aware of the world at that time okay and aware of people's sensibilities to movies like there was nothing like star wars so imagine he just imagine he released what he wanted to release which was the journal of the wills the adventures of star killer episode one star wars imagine if that's what came out People would be like, this is like too out there maybe, you know, but he released it in a way that was like, it hooked a generation by the, like the nuts was like, here's some shit you're going to understand. And in 30 years, your kids are going to love it even more essentially. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And it's timeless. It's, it's a timeless story. Well, it's timeless. I think because it's simplistic in nature, it's like, it's not like, um, it's it is very religious like you know what i mean in terms of um you know you know what that's a whole different conversation to unpack um so i'm not even going to touch it i think we should uh move along here i just i just scrubbed by a kiyari money line i wanted to get that because that dickhead says a lot of quotable shit but uh yeah let's move along um after this we get into the final battle of Naboo and uh so th- there's a lot of stuff going on in this final battle or I should say battles okay yeah to be fair I will give credit where credit's due he does a pretty good job of juggling the three main conflicts within this final 
set. It's like you have Throne Room Assault, you have the battle with Maul, and then you have the um, classic starship battle, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. like, to be fair, it's like, I while individually, other than like two of the three aren't really that engaging um, in terms of like being able to cut back and forth between there and the pacing between the three, I thought was pretty well done. Here's my only gripe with it. Um, I agree with you. I think for its time, I don't know how many movies were doing things like that, that style of cross-cutting. And I know today it is like almost overdone. Like Christopher Nolan has this thing of like the three-peat intercut, which is like cutting from three different individual moments to like enforce a theme or a story point or like whatever, like it just to like build up the moment. And I think that's what George was going for here with cutting these different action beats. But I don't think he might have like thought it out enough to where like these moments will line up correctly, like in in an emotional way. Right. So I think it starts off well, like all the action points kind of start off where they should. And you're like led into these different moments. But the structure of it is it's too different. Right. In the Qui-Gon and or sorry, Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan and Maul battle, Qui-Gon dies like two thirds of the way into the fight. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Anakin still hasn't blown up the battle right. station yet. The Gungans still haven't beat the uh, the droids yet. Yeah. They're getting their ass kicked. So you're like on a ridge of following different things. Right. Like, so you're what on, you're like, saying is like a high, low, and... We should have had sort of the blowing up of the um, Separatist ship. Then we should have the victory of the Gungans. And then we should have had taking control of the throne room. And then we should have sort of mm-hmm. cut back to have like that emotional bring down of the finish yeah. of the mall fight. Okay, exactly like that. That I don't know how much we should have after the mall. Like the the Obi Wan versus Mall bit should have been the last thing. Like we shouldn't have intercut much after. Right, that, that makes a lot of sense. I get that a lot. Yeah, right, because that's the duel of the fates. That's and uh, now we'll I guess talking a, a little bit what like Filoni was talking about duel of fates because. This is like it's just beautiful Star Wars yeah. talk at this point. Like we'll we'll get into that, but the like just his appreciation and knowledge for the prequels is just amazing. So like anybody who hasn't seen it, like what we're talking about, um, Dave Filoni, one of like the executive producers at Lucasfilm, and like behind a lot of great Star Wars stories, um, like got together with all the creators of the Mandalorian, and was basically like they have the show, the gallery show on uh, Disney Plus. And they were basically just, like, talking about George Lucas and, like, appreciating his work. And Filoni really, like, took a couple of minutes to talk about the prequels and specifically episode one. And, like, a movie that is never, like, even acknowledged by people within Star Wars almost. Like, it's like, it's like uh, the, the, the shameful cousin in the family, right? Like, we're not gonna, we're not gonna bring that guy up. Uh, like, he spends, like, a good while just, like, giving it the, the praise that it needs and in specifically the duel of the moment duel of the fates moment mm-hmm. which i think this is the highlight of this movie like this is this is the reason the i sit through that- so much bullshit and odd awkward pacing and shitty dialogue and yeah. bad acting uh, is to get to this moment it's to get to this moment yeah the reason you sith on uh-huh. i got you there right here's one, one uh here's one thing that i have to intro is this is one of not only you know my favorite star wars song but probably one of my favorite pieces of music to ever grace mm. my ears and that is duel of fates which is absolutely outstanding and um mm-hmm. i heard one person sort of 
and this is how this is my head canon now but it's the this is so fucking nerdy i don't give a fuck though <laughs> um it's the no do it it's Go the ahead. force ghosts of sith and jedi cheering on their respective clans as they clash for the first time in a millennia oh yeah there's like a stadium audience around yeah. a force ghost just like yeah right so it's like the the choir is them um yeah you know what yeah too nerdy to to oh no honestly that's no that's actually i know how you're seeing it but like that's totally a cool way of looking at it because that whole operatic thing the amount of like intensity that that brings i can i can almost read it in that because way that's because that's what it is though it's the first conflict the between these two is, yeah. major factions within it's so layered in the sense of duel of the fates it's so layered on like all those levels like yeah it's the first time the jedi and sith are getting like head like seeing each other head to head in millennia yeah no like right? i'm or, getting goosebumps just talking about like 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 when you when i go back and i see all the kotor stuff and i see like the conflicts between the jedi and the sith and it's like there's like bad blood there man and like like seeing maul just put his head up and like could you imagine being quiet on obi-wan in that moment be like holy fuck like this is actually happening i know like this is the shit that we were studying about since we were born never thinking that we were gonna encounter yeah we thought as them were prepared to encounter it but never prepared to encounter yeah yeah thinking they're extinct thinking we defeated this Mm -hmm. evil and now we have to battle this and everything that hangs in the balance of this battle yeah and this is the thing I read on, like, on on, on the deep levels, right? Because that's... We've seen the scene a million times on its own in the f- context of the movie. But, like, really looking at it, at what all the characters are stand, like, where they're standing, okay? Maul has been training for this moment his entire Sith career, right? Like, if we know Maul's story is, like, he was taken uh, by Sheev, like, kidnapped by Sheev from the the Mother Talzin. Um, like, yeah, and, and basically, like... Uh, brainwash i think in a way like to become a sith and so his whole purpose was crafted to for this moment to be the first attack against the jedi mm-hmm. and this is what like sheev was pumping it with like you are gonna be the dude that fucking you're the head of the slaughters the jedi you're the head of the spear that's gonna pierce through the jedi you're the head of the t- yeah yeah and and Maul, you can see it bro this guy is smiling and he's got black teeth and he's like he's enjoying this moment where the the jedi are scared they're dreading this they're like are we prepared to fight this? Like, the, there's the cool moment when uh, Qui Gon is like he meditates for a second. Mm-hmm. Hold on, yeah, I want to deconstruct that. There, like, I want to deconstruct. But let's let's get to that. Yeah, later. yeah. Hold on. Um, okay. Because there's still other stuff within this fight I want to touch upon. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's like um, within the beginning, Maul goes on the defensive, obviously, um, because it's two against one. But it's a nice little touch, like in terms of like choreography within physical storytelling, and I really do think this is the best. Oh, this is the best storytelling within the prequels, and it has no dialogue. It's all through physical yeah. actions, right? And you can tell, yep. like, yeah, Maul's on the defensive when it's two against one, but as soon as it's one against one, Qui Gon's the one that's backing up the entire time, right? Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Just to like the the tiny little details that they have within this fight is insane, and um, the musical notes, the musical cues, the pacing—you know—it doesn't. It's not just the fight the entire time. It does cut back in between, and I think that's good because it like, I think it conveys that like this is like a battle battle. Like this is going on mm. for a long time. These two clans, these are two people that have trained their entire life at the height of their power, 
Um, and they're just battling it out and it, and this is what that looks like. Right. The whole setup when Maul enters, like the most iconic Star Wars entry Mm -hmm. of of any character entering a scene. Um, And the Jedi are like, this is our fight. We'll take it from here. And like everybody else, like, you're fucking right. You are. I'm not facing this uh, double bladed lightsaber. And and that's Star Wars. That's Star Wars. The, The blasters get aside. Right. And now this is. A millennia's worth of conflict getting head to head, and that's the thing. Like and, when people talk about, like they uh, like the the sort of more minimalist stories within Star Wars. They like knowing about the nitty gritty of the universe, the underground. It's like, no man, like show me this. Show me, show me three hours yes. of this. That's show it. me how these two conflicting ideologies battle it out in. So many different other ways. I, I just, I can't get enough of it. So, you want to talk about, uh, like, that scene the, or that, that moment? Yeah, yeah. The, so, the little break moment? Again, again, with the physical storytelling, it's like, you can see with each individual character. So, they get separated by that force field. And they're each sort of left within their own quadrant. You can see Obi-Wan sort of, like, pacing he's impatient he's worried he's anxious you know he wants to Nervous. help out yeah Qui-Gon kills a cucumber he's just you know steady and then like that's my favorite shot of Maul like he just taps it he's like can I get this nah mm. and then he starts like pacing back and forth he's a predator man and it's just like yeah he's he is stalking his prey yeah. while his prey is just standing yeah. there like waiting at that point I think Maul knew he won okay this is what I think I think that action, what Qui-Gon did, that was his Jedi training coming out. Mm-hmm. Being like, okay, cool down, calm down, meditate. Mm-hmm. Okay? I don't know what's right or wrong. I don't know. Okay, Qui-Gon lost the battle. So, obviously, he didn't have the upper hand there. And if I'm looking at it from Maul's perspective for a second, and you look at his body language, you look at his actions, he's stalking Qui-Gon. He's, and, and Obi-Wan's like behind Qui-Gon, like, master, like, worried for him like what are you doing like you know like stand up like you know like just nervous and worried and and maul doesn't have a drop of sweat like doesn't have a drop of look of like nervousness fear questioning himself anything meanwhile qui-gon is meditating he's like taking a break from the battle so like i don't know you tell me like in my head that's where maul wins mind games wise I, I don't, like that could be the flaw of the jedi or whatever in their own like underestimating me their enemy like i don't know i never but, looked at it that way i always just thought of it as like a great way of f- physically conveying each character individually in terms of like this is the embodiment mm-hmm. of their character physically right obi-wan's the okay, anxious yeah. you know trying to do his best help his master student qui-gon's the cue as a cucumber in control of the situation you know, never faltered. But is he in control of the situation? Well, he obviously wasn't, but he thought he was, I guess. Um, right. And then Maul is, like, with what little character we have in this movie, which I think is a real shame, and that's a very valid criticism I've seen, is, like, maybe Maul should have been a sort of recurring antagonist throughout the character. trilogy that right. the trilogy kind of desperately needed. Um, you know, um, I remember seeing one video and a guy sort of, like, taking the main points out of the prequels but sort of rewriting them in a way to where it makes more sense where like obi-wan was the main protagonist of this trilogy and darth maul was the man antagonist that um 
sort of drives him like you know throughout the trilogy um and a lot a lot of the ways in which vader drives luke um mm-hmm. so you know with what little character we have that's my favorite character moment from ball because it conveys what we know so much you know it's just this ruthless predator ready to strike and um mm. maybe it's a representation again one of those accidental things this maybe just an interpretation going too deep into something that may have not been intentional but like maybe it's just Qui-Gon reverting back to his Jedi ways and that's not good enough he needed to get angry show passion like Obi-Wan right did. he needed to take his right it, it, I think that's it Oh, I think Obi-Wan used his fear in that moment, right? Yeah. Maybe tapped in the dark side a little yeah. bit. Because he was angry, bro. Like, you could see it in the fight. The man was yeah. angry. So, I wouldn't be surprised if George Lucas's acting screen direction in that moment was, be angry. You know, you're letting your anger in right now. And you're... The way he, Obi-Wan even kills um, Maul, like, gets him with almost, like, a sneak shot a little bit. Like he catches him by surprise, he gets the upper hand on him. It's not a clean kill. It's a, it's a really swifty uh, maneuver, and out of like impulse or out of like pure skill or whatever it was, it, it seemed like he was operating on another level at that point. Uh, Kenobi, like the pacing of Kenobi versus Maul versus yeah, Qui Gon, that was completely Maul, intentional. I know it was completely intentional. Completely. I, I believe George sure. talked about that. Um... And the fight choreographer talked about that, and then you McGregor talked about how within that moment, that's um, a character-defining moment. Um, it is, yeah. And it sort of plays into like you know, maybe although Qui Gon is sort of the antithesis of what the actual Jedi should be versus what they are, him reverting to the tropes of a Jedi weren't good enough for the situation, whereas. No. Um, much like Luke, you needed to show passion and to to fix the situation. You know, being a emotionless monk isn't the right way to do it. It's like you can still be a Jedi, but oh. show compassion and emotion. And that's maybe where you get garner your power instead of fearing that's where you're going to lose your power. Yeah. And I think this is like Obi-Wan's biggest character defining moment in the scene or his biggest character development. This is what sets Obi-Wan up for the rest of 2, 3, and how we see him transform to what he becomes in yeah. 4, right? So his master is now dead. He's killed his enemy in anger, um, and he's changed because of that now. And now he's okay, he's going to become a Jedi Knight. Yoda's telling him, yeah, obviously, you know, you, you're going to be granted the rank of Master or, or Jedi Knight or whatever. And all Obi-Wan cares about is his word to Qui-Gon. He says, I'm going to train the boy whether you like it or not, not because he feels it's the right thing to do or that he feels he has no. to do it, but it's because he made a promise. It's an obligation, right? It's no longer it's an obliga- it's, it's no a- longer something he does out of um, what he feels is right. right it's what he does. No. It's sort of played off as a chore. And Yoda says something like, Qui-Gon's defiance I sense in you. So you can, from that you see, okay, Obi-Wan isn't this uh, like by the book's character anymore like he's now a little more autonomous a little more of an agent independent agent himself um i don't know how much that's carried forward in this prequel trilogy i don't know how I'm, i think for the most part he's still kind of a jedi council kind of a agent but um 
yeah, I think it, it was a cool little bit where you see Qui-Gon's influence in that moment on uh, on Obi-Wan mm-hmm. and which draws the line right to Luke. Which really at, sucks. At four now, that I'm like, now that we're talking about it, Qui-Gon's influence sort of just dies within this movie. And I feel like that's a goddamn shame because, you know, I feel like that really could have been the basis of the, the No, but it, it doesn't though because you can look to episode six that. and Qui-Gon's teaching of, of caring for people, right? Like, uh, as a Jedi, like, we should care for people. We shouldn't give up on... Or, like, we should love. We should use these emotions or whatever it, to our advantage as Jedi. And Luke saves his father out of love. He didn't do what a Jedi would have, quote-unquote, done in that situation. And I want to save this talk for episode uh, 6 and whatever, but... In episode 6, Yoda and Obi-Wan are the whole movie telling him, you gotta face your father, you gotta fight him, and you gotta kill him, you gotta end this. And the whole time, Luke is like that's not what I want to do. I like, I want to see if I can save my father, you know, like I don't think the right answer is just to fight him and kill him. Like that's what you guys have been doing. I don't think this is the way. And in that moment when he's fighting Vader and he has, he has an opportunity to strike him down with anger. And he thinks like, no, this is my dad. I can maybe do something different. That's Qui-Gon Jinn's teachings coming out, whether indirectly, right? Like completely indirectly. That's not given through Ben or Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's not given through Luke, but somehow that, made its way you know what i mean yeah so yeah i don't know you like, cut out for a bit but a, I, somehow you got to the ot and luke and i think that's what we touched upon before as well um but yeah like that's what we talked about with with in terms of like you know i've within the criticisms of this fight i've heard it's just no all i'll show no stakes and it's like well that's not entirely true and especially like that's what dave filoni sort of emphasizes that like it is the stakes it's the battle of the fate of Anakin in, in terms of, um, you know, how he turns out. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess you can't hear me. I'm mute. Yeah, this, we were having, I was having network troubles with you too. Oh, okay. No, it's all okay. good. Um, yeah, let's, let's get into the deconstruction. I don't think we deconstructed a lot yet, but the duel of the fates, the meaning behind it all, right? It's, a cool fight between, yeah, like we already talked about this point. It's the Jedi and the Sith after millennia coming to clash. And the Sith have the advantage at this point because they've been preparing for this. The Jedi didn't even know they were there, uh, that the Sith existed anymore. So the Sith already had the upper hand. But this is almost like a three-way love triangle with Anakin at the center. Yeah, of it, exactly. Right? This is the fight to for Anakin's fate, his destiny. And this was is the most crucial moment of all of star wars where if qui-gon doesn't die and qui-gon becomes anakin's master qui-gon according to filoni this is what filoni says and i believe him that he would have been the father figure that anakin needed mm-hmm. uh that obi-wan couldn't provide would have guided him he would have guided him and given him you know the guidance that he needed through episode two and three with his mother dying and all these things he probably would have seen right through palpatine's scheme like he had that sense of logic um if maul wins the jedi are like are fucked essentially yeah that's what i was thinking it's like that's kind of like a fast track to achieve manipulating anakin even further Mm -hmm. it's crazy I wonder what would have happened. Like, would have would Palpatine would have kept Maul around for a little longer? Like, would he have said, "Yeah, you know what? Maybe, maybe this is the guy." I don't know. I think I think Palpatine's plan was always to ditch Maul, though. I think he was always going to be just a tool and not. Well, the, that the was main his plan to ditch Dooku, weapon. as seen in Episode Three and Dooku. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yep. 
but yeah, it's and it, it yeah. So like Obi Wan's role in the whole thing is is I find the most interesting part, right? Because in the beginning of the movie, you go from him looking down on Anakin, like we don't need him here, he's dangerous, uh, master, like questioning his master the whole time, and to the end where it's like, okay, now this is all on Obi Wan. Now Obi Wan out of obligation to his master and for essentially doing the right thing because if he doesn't do it, then things can be flipped. Now he has to be the one to win and become that figure for Anakin, even though deep down, that's not what he wants. That's not who he is. That's not what he's about. Right. right? Exactly. Um, it just really uh, goes to show you like there, there really was some intention behind this fight. Um, it wasn't just uh, all flash. That's probably what gets exemplified though, is like everyone highlights like how impressive the choreography is and everyone thinks it's all about that. It's like, no, this really is, um, a well thought out conflict. They're probably the most well thought out conflict mm-hmm. within the prequel trilogy. Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of idea to execution on yeah. screen, I think what would have made it better, and like I think it just comes down to editing, really, because visually, like yeah, like this whole moment is given to us visually. There's no dialogue in any of these intercutting moments, but you know, like almost let the Battle of Naboo happen, let that part of the Gungan thing end, and give us just. Obi-Wan uh, and Qui-Gon versus Maul and Anakin and the Starfighter and just cut in between those right so now you're visually seeing what the stakes are you're you're seeing what they're fighting for what like what this is all about but instead we got we're jumping from uh, the ground of Naboo to the space to the fucking power plant area that they're in and like it's that part of it I think what we're talking about now gets a little bit unclear it's like you, you kind of have to think a little bit like what's going on to get that out of it but that could be i think solved through editing yeah exactly and um that's why there's sort of a passionate post community on editing the prequels to maximize the you know the the crazy scatteredness of george's mind untempered so (laughs) um yeah man i don't know there's really not really much else to say but that was probably the well that was probably the best part of the movie for me. It's always the best Duel part of, of the movie And then after for me. that, yeah. And yeah, like I think I already touched on the ending. Basically, like I, what I think about the ending, like the final moments is this movie stands in contrast to the other Star Wars movies where it's about peace, I think. It's about unification and, and building towards a unification, mm-hmm. right? So like we get a scene that mirrors the, um, the metal sequence in A New Hope, that celebration kind of idea. Um... And you get, so in the beginning, you have this conflict between the Naboo and the Gungans. They don't get along very well. And at the end, they come together and they share this moment of celebration, right? Um, So yeah, I think this is something that kind of went over my head for a while. I think like, yeah, this is a really clear homage to episode four and whatever and cool little fun ending. But to me, it showed me like what George was doing differently, as clear as possible. Yeah, exactly. Um, Again, like this movie is just a scatterbrain of of kind of George's of ideas just barfed onto a script and sort of direct. Like you've heard like how he directed this movie, like actual examples of um, who voiced Darth Maul. It wasn't the actual guy that played him. Oh no, it wasn't Ray Park. No, right? it wasn't Ray Park who voiced him. In no, the movie? it was. Um, oh, I forget. Uh, and it's not Star Killer now. No, not in the first no, one. No, not though. the first one. Um, 
Who was it? It was Peter Servoy? I don't know how to say his last name. Well, whoever the guy is, he had like literally one or two. Yeah, lines exactly. The whole movie. So um, he sort of um, re- recapped a, a directing note from George, and George told him, like, he's like, So how do you want this character to sound? Like, what do you want to be? He's like, George is like, Oh, just make him sound really, really evil, you know? And. <laughs> it's like it's like the it's obvious man actually i haven't told you you have a good george Lucas thank you thank you very much um i've watched a lot of behind the scenes stuff so i've i've gotten pretty i can tell i can tell you just put practice into his impressions so but yeah go on he um george definitely had trouble sort of reeling in his own vision he had tough time prioritizing you know what was and wasn't important and that that's really like you know and that's same thing with anything like when telling a story it's like um that's what they taught me in school when i'm actually like writing a paper for research it's like i'm still trying to convey a story i'm still trying to convey a situation right and i need to have that overseer i need to have a group of people to reel me in and really exemplify of what's important while mm. telling the story, to the right? story you're trying to tell, because certain things were important yeah. to me, and I really wanted to explain that, but it really wasn't important to the overall idea I was trying to get at. And you can only write so much, mm-hmm. right? So it's mm-hmm. like this really is sort of a lesson in um, having a good group of people around you to really in. They're not trying to like con- like confide you or make you less creative. Um, it just takes a good group of people to understand what you're trying to do and then direct it. Push in a, forward. In a right, yeah. Push forward yes. a vision. Um, cause it like, you know, despite George being a visionary, it takes more than one person to convey a vision like that. And I think episode four is especially yeah. exemplary of that. So episode four is a miracle that it exists and having that group of people in. Yeah. Episode one, unfortunately might be, and the prequels in general, maybe, but is the case where and if you know i if you watch that documentary on the behind the scenes of episode one like there's a i'm sure i've seen seen it like 10 times yeah i'm sure we've seen it like and talked about it and like it's one of those things where you look at the state of a collaboration what a collaboration should be right and like that's what it is you're making a movie with people it's never just one person like even if you're the writer director you have to be relying on people and and invite them to your vision and idea so that it can be executed in the best way possible and make sure that they feel something towards that vision and, and, and contribute their own identity towards that vision. You know, that's how you get things like John Williams music. That's how you get things like uh, Ben Burt's lightsaber sounds, like all these iconic things that come from individuals, people, not just George Lucas, right? Like it's, it's George Lucas sharing his vision and people being like, yeah, man, I, I fuck with that. I think I have something for you. Like, you know, where I think with this, it was like, hey, George, you got it, man. You you're know what the best. Yeah, like, yeah, you're the we'll, best. We'll do whatever yeah, you say. You're the creator of Star you're Wars. The you're yeah, the they're all. Yeah. That's what it was. You know, like nobody seemed to tell him like, no, or or let's try something else. Or, you know, like I, I was watching this thing on, on the casting of Anakin, young Anakin. And, you know, watching this movie back today, I think, you know, like, I don't know, like the kid got a bad rap for his acting in it, but he wasn't maybe necessarily bad. He might just not have been properly trained for the role. 
Like, I think he had a certain charisma and, like, a certain energy and tone that fits the Anakin Skywalker character and, like, who he is in later movies in 2 and 3, specifically. Mm -hmm. He's kind of this hotshot, impulsive guy. Um, And you get a little bit of that energy here. And I looked at, like, the casting auditions for other considerable Anakins, and there's better actors out there. But would they have been the better Anakin? I don't know. It's tough to say with George's sort of influence in the director chair. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that comes that comes back to it's like is 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 his strength in directing or writing or editing? It's like I think knows? his strength is in like, world building. Undoubtedly, I think I, I think too, so too. I think he is an ideas person. I think he's a great ideas person. Right. And if if he has like the the great like, w- imagine episode one with George's script and Steven Spielberg directing. Right. Like, We've talked with about what this before, was yeah. planned. It's crazy crazy yeah, what was planned for the prequel trilogy and they kind of just let them out there to dry it, it yeah it, exactly and and even since then it's like oh but this was george's thing this was his baby so now people will still hate on him for the prequels you know this is like we left george go unhinged this was george raw so you know all credit to him but at the same time you know like and, oh, it's man. like it so pisses me know, off so much hate. that like a lot of people who are sort of you know, applauding George's creativity. Like, I see it so much on Reddit now, especially in the Star Wars Reddit. And I hate... Go- I don't even subscribe there. I just go there just, like, when I really want to ruin my day, I just go there. Just blow off some yeah. steam, yeah. It's a good way to piss yeah. you off. Um, and people are calling, like, George a hack and a fraud. And he's like, you're not even... That. I'm like, listen, like, just because he had other people helping him out in 4 and 5 and 6 doesn't mean he doesn't have great creative vision, right? Again, he wouldn't be a billionaire if he didn't have great creative vision. He would, We wouldn't be talking about him now if he wasn't some sort of visionary in terms of his creative no. ability. It's just that, again, you need those well-structured people around you to reel you in sometimes. Because guess what? What yeah. I find... Imp- Tame the wilderness. Right. Tame it. You what know? I find important and my and what I might want to emphasize might not be what's good for the story, right? Mm-hmm. And vice versa. So it's like you need or or that particular story. Like he might be thinking like years ahead. He might be thinking, oh, but this can play off in episode nine, so we got to do this right now, right? Like that's how he talked about episode. Like when he was doing episode four, five, and six, he was already talking like in the media. Oh, I got episode nine figured out. You know, Did like he in really? his head, he was I think always. Yeah, well, he said, Mark Hamill said, like, I think at, like after 5 came out, he's like, well, George talked to me about coming back in 30 years in, like, 2015. Or, like, he said something like 2013, like, around then, to come back and play, like, an Obi-Wan character. He's like, I picture you being, a, like, an Obi-Wan type of figure and coming back to train a new League of Jedi. So he was always thinking about the future. Well, that didn't turn and out And maybe that's well. where, you know... Yeah, however the execution panned out is, is a different story, a different uh, conversation. That's probably my... Uh... But imagine being Mark Hamill, right? And having this current conversation with George Lucas to what episode seven would have yeah. been. And then getting to the set on ep- the day of like, shooting episode hey, seven. Hey, George, like, you, got one, uh, JJ. you got one job. <laughs> yeah. And it, like, JJ, what do you want me to do? It's like, just stare into the camera. Really intensely. That's it. Episode seven. Boom. Yeah. God damn. I can't wait to talk about the sequels. Fuck. I, I'm dreading it. Okay. I think this is a good place to and off on and this one absolutely um so do you want to shout out our socials and where we are yeah uh yeah guys so um we're constantly posting on i mean as much as we can you know we're posting on instagram uh uh just hop on instagram type in at mythic morons see a couple beauties on the page and click the follow button 
you know, we, we want to interact with the people that listen here and we appreciate all the audience that takes the time to listen to us and share their ideas and give feedback to our podcast, leave a comment, review rating, all that kind of stuff. We really appreciate it. Always striving to make the show better and, and just, you know, have interesting discussions about movies that we find interesting. So, you know, let us know what movies you find interesting on Instagram at mythic morons and, you know, always be a part of our discussion and we love that. So thank you guys for paying attention and listening. And, you know, as much as I see it, like our audience is growing, which I love to see I told Chaney, like, we got some listeners in Ireland, some in the States. So I really appreciate that. Uh, we, we both do. We really love that. And love to hear from you guys if, if you're out there and follow us on Instagram. So, yeah, Absolutely. This is it for episode 13? 13. Episode, yeah, I think I think we're on 13 now. Um, and, yeah, so we're going to, I think, continue doing some more Star Wars talks every now and then. Yeah, and some things to look forward to. Probably... Um, we're going to continue some Star Wars stuff. We're not going to like rail it out every week because I feel like I get burned no. out on Star Wars easily. So yeah, no, we'll keep it fresh. Like we'll keep it fresh. It's, it won't be an every week Star Wars discussion. Um, I would really like to do next week, like uh, just a new movie, like kind of back to our roots of like just talking about one or two films and yeah. something new maybe that, that has come out that people haven't seen or that we just haven't seen yep. yet. So um, we're we're gonna we're gonna noodle with that idea and and stay tuned on our Instagram page to find out what we talk about next. Um, and with and with that, um, with Tenant also sorry last <laughs> thing with Tenant being released internationally. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> couple couple weeks down the road, you expect um a pretty yeah. fresh Tenant review. Oh, I can't wait! Yeah. I can't wait to go to a fucking movie theater and sit down and eat a bag of popcorn and just fucking enjoy a Christopher Nolan. I can eat a bag of popcorn with a so, mask yes. on. <laughs> that's cut a hole in it like aren't you seeing that aren't you seeing the people that cut holes in their masks oh i don't see that god damn crazy world we live in anyways right, signing off yeah, signing off peace